What do you want to call me a murderer for? I've never killed anyone. I don't need to kill anyone. I think it. Believe me, if I started murdering people, there'd be none of you left. lives of Jennifer, Rita, Lisa, Noni, Cynthia, Christine, Marie, or Tanya. Hello and welcome, friends and enemies. Welcome to Exploring Evil. Please tell your friends about us on Facebook and Twitter. You can also leave a voicemail, if you like, at the end of the podcast. Tonight, we talk about one of the most sadistic murderers I've come across, the Molala Forest Murderer. It was a warm August night in 1987 Portland on what police called Prostitute Row. A man the prostitutes called Steve the Gambler pulls up alongside a blonde woman he recognized and invited her in. He takes a sip off his vodka and orange juice and pulls into a Denny's parking lot. He pulls out a hunting knife on the hooker and begins stabbing her. Two men hear her screams and check to see what's going on. One of the men sees a woman sprint through the blaze of a streetlight and a man pursuing her. The hunter catches her and begins to stab her until all the men call out into the thick night air. During the investigation, authorities were trying to piece together a jigsaw puzzle. One piece was of a man who enjoyed vodka and orange juice cocktails he mixed himself with airline bottles of Smirnoff and single-serving orange juice. Another piece was of a sociopath who had dangerous fetishes, fetishes that would spell the end of eight women or more and destroy the lives of their friends and relatives. Dayton Leroy Rogers was born in Moscow, Idaho in 1953. His family moved frequently and adopted four more children after Dayton. Moving around a lot can rob children of the formative years of learning to forge relationships and build relationships with teachers and other people in the community. In seventh grade, he was arrested for shooting a BB gun at passing cars, but serious violence was just around the corner. When Rogers was 18, he picked up a 15-year-old girl who was hitchhiking. He convinced her, somehow, to go into the woods with him for sex. 
He was committing statutory rape, but he picked up the same girl a few days later and went back to the same spot to have sex. He leaned over like he was going to kiss her, but instead plunged a knife into her stomach. He allegedly told the girl, I can't trust you, but then proposed marriage if she would not report him to the authorities. She agreed if he would take her to the ER, but she told the doctors what really happened. He pleaded guilty to second-degree assault, but only received four years probation. Six months later, Rogers assaulted two teenage girls with a soda bottle. He was charged with second- and third-degree assault, but was found not guilty by reason of mental defect. He was sent to the Oregon State Hospital by Lane County Circuit Court Judge Helen Fry. He was released from the hospital in December 1974. In January of 1976, he was indicted on first-degree rape, but was eventually acquitted. One month later, Rogers picked up two teenage girls and raped one at knife point and threatened the other. Rogers sweet-talked the girls to get them in his car, and they went to get some beer and smoke some pot. Rogers reached into his glove box and pulled out a knife. He used a wire coat hanger to bind the girls' wrists and ankles. After the assault, he apologized and acted like it was some kind of game. Rogers was indicted and convicted of coercion and rape. He got a five-year prison sentence. In July of 1987, Steve the Gambler was on the prowl. He cruised Union Avenue searching for prey. 31-year-old Heather Brown was on the menu. Her outfit was skin-tight and revealing, and Steve the Gambler liked what he saw. She wasn't out turning tricks when he saw her, but she figured, why not make a quick buck? Rogers told Heather his name was Steve, and he was a professional gambler from Nevada, and they stopped to get some refreshments. Heather bought a pack of cigarettes, and Rogers bought a six-pack of beer. Once back in the vehicle, they discussed their plans, and Rogers told her he wanted to tie someone up and fuck them. He pulled onto an old logging road. Heather went to grab her shoes to jump out, but Rogers began speeding and swerving to keep her from jumping out of the vehicle. She reached for the door handle, and he grabbed her to try and keep her in, but she was able to break free from his grip, and she jumped out. After she jumped, Rogers slowed down but kept driving because he saw a logging truck in his rearview mirror. The logger slammed on his brakes to avoid hitting her and helped her into his truck and gave her some tissues for her cuts and abrasions. She told the man what had happened, saying that she had to jump because he was going to kill her. The logger got her to the urgent care center where they found that she had also suffered a concussion. A call came into the Clackamas County Sheriff Department reporting the incident, and Steve the Gambler's reign of terror was well underway. Detective Steve Turner was assigned to the case to try to snare the man that stalked the streetwalkers of Portland's prostitute row. Turner was tasked with bringing the madness to an end, but not before more bodies piled up. Rogers was clearly a sexual predator and sought sexual gratification through violence. 
Dayton Leroy Rogers had slipped through the cracks of the justice system, receiving minimal sentences and avoiding a sentence due to mental illness. Had he been sentenced for the crimes he had committed, lives may have been saved. As it stood, a violent sexual predator was turned loose on the public, and his lust for blood was unquenchable. As is the case with many sociopaths, Dayton fit in well with his surroundings, a wolf in sheep's clothing. People liked the small engine mechanic who ran a successful business, a seemingly happy marriage, and had a toddler. All seemed well on the surface, but a deadly desire burned within. Summer, 1987. Dayton preferred to hunt under the cover of darkness and had to offer reasons to his wife as to why he was out so late. She called the shop to check on Dayton, and he said he was always backed up with orders and he had to get caught up. When he didn't answer the phone, he claimed he was out getting coffee or in the middle of something. But his mind was elsewhere. His wife began to hear stories about Dayton at local bars, and Sherry's phone calls became less frequent. August 6th. Rogers woke up early and made his way to his shop. He seemed happy, but projects were backing up, even with the man he'd hired for help around the shop. He began to feel the stress of falling behind and grew distant from his family. Sherry was worried but didn't want to put more pressure on what she thought was her overworked husband. Back at the shop, Dayton departed for a trip to the gas station to pick up some airline-sized bottles of vodka to mix with the single-serving orange juice to make his favorite beverage. Dayton's mind drifted as he daydreamed about his plans for the evening. He itched to hit Prostitute Row and track down another victim. He had dinner with his family and again told his wife that he needed to go play catch-up at the shop. His wife was old-fashioned and naive, so she took him at his word. He again picked up some liquor and knocked out a couple of tickets at his shop, but his hunger was growing, and he eagerly awaited the night. In the early hours of August 2nd, Steve the Gambler was cruising Prostitute Row in Portland. He spotted his next victim, a stout blonde, caught his eye. He remembered picking her up, and setting her free. He slid up next to her and had no trouble getting her into his truck on Union Boulevard. He drove off, his unknowing prey already in his snare. A man sleeps in an apartment, and a Denny's restaurant light washes over his bedroom window. He was in and out of sleep all night. He heard what he thought was a woman screaming in the distance. Help me, she yelled. I'm being raped. The man peeked through the blinds and saw a man running under the streetlight. Another man was pulling into the Denny's parking lot with the windows down. He heard the screams too. He saw two people struggling on the other side of the parking lot. He saw a man standing over a naked woman. A handicapped customer was getting into his wheelchair and heard the woman screaming. He made his way to the woman and Steve the Gambler took off running. When they got to the woman, they could see that he had slit her throat. A man began CPR on the woman, but it was too late. 
the woman was covered in stab wounds. Just then, Rogers appeared from the other side of the building and made a break for his truck. Two of the bystanders got in their own vehicles and tried to block Rogers in, but he drove through some landscaping to get away. One of the bystanders followed Rogers at high speeds over 100 miles per hour. The man was able to get the license number off the truck and gave up the chase. He drove back to the restaurant to pass the message on to the authorities, which were now swarming the parking lot. Six bystanders shared their stories with police about the incident. They heard the screams, spotted the murderer, watched him escape, and sadly saw the woman die. The sheriff's department collected evidence, which included what the deputies surmised belonged to the victim. A sweatshirt, jeans, and a shoe. There was no ID, but they did find shoelaces that they assumed may have been used to tie the woman up. Soon, two sheriff's detectives arrived and questioned the witnesses. They ran the plate number through the motor vehicles department and found that the truck belonged to a friendly, hard-working man who lived about 20 miles from the crime scene. The detectives arrived at his home early in the morning hours and found he wasn't there, but were told they might find him at his repair shop. When the detectives got to the repair shop, they looked around a little bit before knocking on the door. They were greeted by Dayton Leroy Rogers, looking worse for the wear, and were invited in. They noted that he appeared to be half drunk from the night before. He told police he'd been at his shop all night. He invited the detectives to search the premises and they obliged. The detective put his hand on the hood of the truck and found it to be hot. Been here all night, huh? What happened to your hand? Which was bandaged. Did you cut yourself? Dayton said he cut his hand with a hacksaw and said he'd been to the local hospital to have the wound taken care of. So he had left the shop. The detectives knew they had their man. The woman was identified as 25-year-old Lisa Smith, who had two kids and lived close to Union Avenue in Portland. She had an arrest record for prostitution. The detectives learned about Rogers' arrest record, including sexual assault of two 15-year-old girls, that Rogers was found not guilty due to mental illness. D.A. Darrell Lawson wrote a statement after Rogers' not guilty verdict, saying, quote, this man is an extreme danger to the community and especially young women. He is both sexually and physically violent and is a murder case looking for a place to happen. He was exactly right, and that place turned out to be Prostitute Row in Portland, Oregon. They saw that Rogers was indicted in January 1976 on first-degree rape, but was acquitted. Before that rape charge was resolved, he raped one and threatened to rape two high school girls. The two girls had skipped school, and Rogers convinced them to go with him to get some beer. They saw a picture of a man who had kidnapped a prostitute and had served 27 months in Oregon prisons, and his parole was revoked. Detectives were putting a case together against Rogers when a relative told them to check a wood-burning stove in his shop. 
Inside, they found a burned tennis shoe, which had metal pieces that matched the shoe found in the Denny's parking lot at the murder of Lisa Smith. They searched his vehicle, where they found knife cuts all over the interior of his truck and a fingerprint matched to the murder victim, Lisa Smith. They found a small green band off a lid of single-serving orange juice. Detectives visited the doctor who bandaged Rogers up on the night of the Denny's murder, and he explained that the cut was clean like a knife wound and not jagged like you would get from a hacksaw. They arranged a photo lineup for one of the witnesses, and he immediately picked Rogers out. Detectives also did a photo lineup for several prostitutes who also identified Rogers, who they knew as Steve the Gambler. One even saw Smith walking to get into Rogers' truck. The detectives found out that Rogers told all of the prostitutes his name was Steve and he was a professional gambler from Reno or Las Vegas. He offered them up to $80 for bondage sex. He wanted the girls completely naked, and his scenarios often involved binding hands and feet, along with rope, dog collars, nylon stockings, and shoelaces. He liked to cause the girls physical pain through torture and also had a foot fetish. The girls told the detectives that the dates always took place in Roger's truck and he always drank homemade screwdrivers from airline-sized bottles of vodka and single-serving orange juice he picked up at gas stations. One girl went with police to the gas station to show them what brands Rogers liked to drink. One of the prostitutes told a story where she agreed to straight sex, but Rogers tied her up and tortured her by biting on her breasts, buttocks, and feet hard enough to draw blood. Another told a similar story about Steve the Gambler, and he threatened to cut off her breasts. Another one said that her clothes were cut off with a machete and he cut her heel with a knife. They all said he liked to masturbate during the torture. Smith's autopsy revealed 11 stab wounds, including one to the chest that had severed a major artery. She had slashing wounds to her breasts, two in her stomach, and one in her back. She had deep defensive wounds on each hand, most likely trying to grab the knife. Her throat was also slit. She had deep bruising on her wrists that were most likely due to being bound. A grand jury indicted Rogers on the charge of aggravated murder. Aggravating circumstances and charges are usually when an offender is committing another felony kidnapping, rape, sexual abuse, and torture, all in this case. Rogers retained an attorney and pleaded not guilty to the charges. The Molala Forest Everett Banyard was a crossbow hunter on a timber farm that encompassed 90,000 acres. He came across a nude, half-buried body of a woman that was in an advanced state of decomposition. The hunter immediately contacted Clackamas County authorities. The hunter led them up a logging road and through a rugged forest. Detectives set up officers to watch the scene and decided they would come back the next day as night had already fallen. 
The next day, searchers found two more bodies within 50 feet of the original corpse. The scene was littered with small bottles of vodka and single-serving orange juice bottles. They called in a tracking dog to search for more bodies. Over the next week, seven bodies were recovered from the cluster dump area. The bodies all shown signs of stabbing similar to the ones found on Smith. Several bodies had the feet cut off, and some had the feet cut halfway through and then broken. Detectives believed that the murderer cut the feet off while the victims were still alive to cause as much pain as possible and the one that was cut and broken was to try to get the woman to wake back up after shock had set in. Detectives didn't initially suspect Rogers until one remembered the homemade screwdrivers Rogers loved so much. He also thought that when identified, the women would be known prostitutes. The victims were identified as Lisa Marie Mock, age 23, Maureen Ann Hodges, 26, Christine Lotus Adams, 35. Nandis K. Cervantes, 26. Retha Gales, 16. Cynthia Diane DeVore, 21. Tanya Johnson, 18, was recently identified through DNA as the unknown victim. All but one had connections to prostitution or heroin addiction. At the time of this investigation, the police didn't want to tip their hand and kept the details close to their vest. They didn't want to reveal that Rogers was their main suspect and waited until they had enough evidence to indict him with a grand jury. Rogers was brought to trial in February 1988 in Clackamas County. The DA told jurors that Rogers murdered Lisa Smith by following a pattern he had established as what he called a vicious predator who killed for sexual thrill. Furthermore, the DA said, he went to Portland to satisfy his bizarre sexual appetite. You will find his appetite including bondage, masturbation, and intent to inflict physical pain. Roger's attorney tried to convince the jury that, although his client was despicable, he killed Smith in self-defense. He tried to spin the yarn that Smith saw money in Roger's wallet and found a knife in his car and decided to rob him. He said the stabbing occurred when there was a struggle for the knife and she was stabbed purely by accident. The jury heard the witness testimony from the onlookers at the Denny's parking lot. They told the jury that they saw him chasing Smith as she was fleeing, screaming for her life. The jury heard testimony about how her wounds were consistent with torture and showed graphic photos of the attack that took her life. The jury heard testimony from the 15-year-old girl he sweet-talked into sex and stabbed in the abdomen in 1972. She stood up, pulled her shirt up, and showed the jury her six-inch scar. Another witness told the jury about when she was picked up by Rogers and was subsequently hogtied and had her clothes cut off. He said he had to kill her because he thought she would go to the police, but he eventually let her go. 
a Clackamas County corrections officer who supervised Rogers while he was on parole for the 1976 coercion conviction in which he tied up two other high school girls at Knife Point, testified that she interviewed the defendant in September 1982. I asked him if he were to do this all over again if he would do anything differently, Anderson testified. He indicated there would not be a witness next time. At another point in the trial, Rogers testified in his own defense, retelling the story about how he fought back against Smith while fearing for his life. He said he knocked her arm away and wrestled her for the knife, which he eventually obtained. I got a hold of it and used the knife on her. I was just going back and forth in virtually any direction I could, testified Rogers, explaining how Jennifer received so many cuts. She eventually jumped from the truck, and he chased her across the parking lot, but he eventually grabbed her, he said, and she fell to the pavement. Both of our feet entangled, he said. She went down backwards, and I fell down on top of her. On the way down, that's when I stabbed her in the upper area, he testified, indicating the right side of his chest near the shoulder. No one wants Dayton Leroy Rogers released, his defense attorney said only minutes before the jury left the courtroom to decide his client's fate. I don't want him released. You don't want him released. I question whether Dayton Rogers even wants himself released. But what is needed is permanent isolation of this man. In his fantasy land, he's become a sexual monster you've heard about from these girls. He's developed and nurtured these feelings into a ritual. It's a pattern you can't ignore. He's a sick man. But do we kill him? Do we have a death sentence for people who are as sick and depraved as this? Continued his attorney. Look at the evidence. After the killing of Miss Smith, he goes back to work and thinks about going out to a coffee shop. The state has proven beyond a reasonable doubt that he's a sick man. But, argued his attorney, he doesn't deserve a death sentence. Four hours later, the twelve jurors returned and announced that they had unanimously voted that the murder of Jenny Smith was deliberate. They also unanimously voted that Jenny's murder was an unreasonable response to any provocation from the victim. However, after one juror adamantly opposed the death penalty, all twelve agreed that Rogers would not pose a continuing threat to society because he would be imprisoned for life. Judge Gilroy immediately sentenced Dayton to life in prison. Next up, the Molala Forest Murderer. The prosecution sought the death penalty. Detectives worked with the DA's office to present the evidence to convince a grand jury to indict Rogers on the Molala Forest serial killer charges, which they did in May of 1988. Dayton Leroy Rogers would again plead not guilty. Detectives spent the next eight months working with the DA, putting forth evidence to put Rogers to death. Jury selection took two months and ended up as 12 women with a woman as an alternate. When the trial finally opened on March 30, 1989, 
this time in the courtroom of Clackamas County Circuit Judge Raymond R. Bagley, Jr., the DA outlined his case for the jurors, contending that a knife identical to the one that was used to kill Jenny Smith was found near the Molala forest victims' bodies. He described the torture, the grisly details of victims having their feet sawed or cut from their bodies, and how one, Noni Cervantes, had been eviscerated from a machete, having been sexually mutilated. For the next five weeks, the jury heard one woman after another talk about their experiences in terror with the defendant. One former prostitute testified about her fifth and final date with Dayton, an encounter that lasted in excess of six hours. He got out of his truck, she testified, and went over to the side where you could see over the forest. He said how beautiful it was. I went back to the truck and started to get undressed. He came up behind me and started to put bondage devices on. When I told him they were too tight that they were cutting into my wrist, he said that's what he wanted to do. He started biting on my breast, she continued. He was biting and tearing. I told him to please stop. That's too rough. This isn't right. I cried and begged for him to stop, and the more I pleaded and begged, the worse the abuse got. When I screamed too loudly, he became concerned and put something up against my neck, which I assumed was a knife. He told me to be quiet, or else I'd really have something to cry about. I didn't say anything, and I tried to stifle the sobs as much as I could. Floria Adams, the 15-year-old daughter of victim Christine Adams, testified that decorative studs, star-shaped grommets that were found in Dayton's wood-burning stove, came from her mother's pants. The Oregon State criminologist who worked closely on the case explained how he had found pieces of multicolored glass in Lisa Mock's hair and how they were similar to glass parts found inside Dayton's wood stove. He also testified that hairs found in Dayton's pickup were macroscopically and microscopically similar to head hairs he compared on the remains of the three victims. This man, said the DA, in his closing argument, pointing at Dayton. This man is obsessed, totally consumed in a sexual way with women's feet and dominance. What is the ultimate act of dominance? It is to remove that foot. We submit that is what happened in the Molala Forest. The DA also reminded the jurors about all of the orange juice containers and miniature liquor bottles found at the Molala Forest crime scene insisting they made up a part of Roger's signature. If there is a signature to a crime under those circumstances, you can look at the signature, said the DA, and see the identity of the killer. The evidence is like the mask of Zorro. It's the signature. The defendant, ladies of the jury, not only committed these murders, but he might as well have written his name on the victim's corpses. A vocational instructor at the Oregon State Correctional Institution explained how he had taught Rogers the skills needed to become a mechanic when Dayton was in prison for the 1976 attack on the two Kaiser, Oregon high school girls he picked up when the girls skipped school. Dayton learned fast. In barely two years, he went from being a person with little or no mechanical skills to someone with high skills. 
Psychological testimony presented at the trial said Rogers only committed violent acts when he was intoxicated or felt cheated and was sexually aroused. He liked situations where he could dehumanize his victims, which was easier with prostitutes. All of those factors must be present for him to commit murder, and he would be no threat to the men in prison. On the other hand, said John B. Cochran, senior forensic psychologist at the Oregon State Hospital, Dayton would, in fact, pose a continuing threat even in prison. Cochran detailed a homosexual relationship that Dayton had been engaged in and contended that Without the availability of women as victims, it would only be a matter of time before he began selecting male victims. Cochran, who has studied many serial killers over the course of his career and has served as a consultant to the Green River Task Force, explained that the very act of murder can be very pleasurable for the sexually sadistic killers, such as Rogers. Cochran elaborated by explaining that most serial killers fantasize about murder so frequently that killing becomes second nature to them. Some even develop a sexual bond to the murder weapon they used. The prosecution characterized Rogers as a walking time bomb. He said it was only a matter of time before he began his pattern of deceit all over again. He described Rogers as clever, one who was capable of not only luring and then deceiving his victims, but of deceiving and manipulating the psychologist who had examined him. He had done it time and time again, and would continue the same pattern if given the opportunity. He can, in every respect, including his appearance, walk among you without giving any indication of the horrors that are within him. On Wednesday, June 7, 1989, after more than 17 hours of grueling deliberation, the jury voted unanimously that Dayton had murdered his victims deliberately and without reasonable, if any, provocation, and that he would be a continuing threat to society, whether behind prison walls or on the outside. Judge Begley sentenced Dayton Leroy Rogers to death by lethal injection. The Aftermath Although John Turner, his colleagues, and the DA couldn't have been happier with the outcome, they knew that the bizarre case of Dayton Leroy Rogers was not over. Aside from testifying at his trial, Dayton Leroy Rogers has not spoken to authorities since invoking his rights against self-incrimination shortly after his arrest for the murder of Jenny Smith. And again when Detective Machado tried to question him about the Molala Forest murders. He has shown no remorse for his crimes. The Oregon Supreme Court upheld his convictions, but his sentence of death was overturned by the Oregon Supreme Court in the spring of 2000 for the second time. Dayton will at some point go back to the court for yet another sentencing phase. If he is resentenced to death, he will die by lethal injection. Otherwise, he will be sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole, an option now available due to the enactment of recent legislation. For now, Dayton sits in a single cell on death row at Oregon State Penitentiary. He is allowed 20 minutes out of every 24 hours to shower, shave, and exercise.
Many of Dayton Rogers' surviving victims have started new lives, working to overcome drug habits and become productive citizens. A few have died as a direct result of their lifestyles, and others are still working the streets. One burning question remains in the case of Dayton Rogers. How many other bodies, victims of Dayton's bloodlust, are still lying in Oregon's forests, awaiting discovery? Unfortunately, unless Rogers decides to talk, that question may never be answered. I entered this podcast thinking that police drop the ball a lot in murder investigations, but I've changed my view a little. It's unacceptable when police departments misplace evidence. I have no sympathy for police departments losing evidence, but in the cases I've covered so far, the police have done their job as far as supplying enough evidence for conviction. But the system spits them back out. Dayton Rogers stabbed a girl in the stomach and was charged with second-degree assault and did no time. To me, if you stab someone in the stomach and leave a six-inch scar, that should be attempted murder. He does 15 years and some people are still alive. He gets paroled, rapes someone when he gets out, and does another 20. That saves more lives. Instead, we have people doing heavy bids for weed, which is or will soon be legal throughout the country. By the way, shouldn't rape also be aggravated kidnapping? The victim is being held against her will, or his will. It seems that a high percentage of cases I'm looking into have the same problem. Let's get the justice system straightened out and make violent crimes a focus and victimless crimes take a bit of a backseat. And that's the story of Dayton Rogers. If you enjoy the show, please leave a five-star review and make sure to tell your friends and enemies about the show. You can share info on Facebook and Twitter as building listenership is one of the most difficult things to do for a new show. I want to take this opportunity to thank you for all of your support, especially Dweez for the voicemail. The podcast is good so far. I like it. We like you. We dig. Bye. And I would encourage everyone to send in a voicemail and share your thoughts. You can also email us at exploringevil at gmail.com. I would like to thank the listeners from around the world, the Czech Republic, Iraq, Australia, as well as right here in the USA. Have a great morning, afternoon, or night, whatever time zone you're listening in. Thank you.